scriptures say in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, that at the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. God's perfect plan was to send the very Son of God to take on complete humanity so that all of humanity, all those who would come to him and to ask with repentant hearts to ask for salvation, it would be given to them. And I'm reminded this morning... um, as I have uh, I've, I've pushed the limits, okay? You know, these, these lights that are blinding the perimeter here, right? The instructions say connect no more than three in a row. <laughs> Two weeks in a row now they have burnt out on one level or another. And I've had to climb the ladder and replace the fuses, right? Like my plan was cool lights. <laughs> you know, that's my plan. Um, doesn't always come to pass. And you may have plans for how today is going to go or for how the holidays are going to go or for how the emotions are going to be on Christmas morning and how grateful and happy and wonderful everything's going to be. You might have a plan for your entire life and it may not be God's plan and so you might be frustrated. But God's plan, God's plan is perfect. And God's plan has worked out perfectly. And God is accomplishing each and every thing that he determined to do. He set up a plan at the beginning of time to send his son at the perfect time that we might receive each and everything that we need. The gift of Jesus to us. And so I just want to encourage you this morning, however you walk into this place, Uh, that God's plan is perfect and that uh, the fuse isn't ever going to burn out on your salvation, right? You know, you're not going to have to climb a ladder and swap out two fuses to get eternal life back, right? It doesn't work like that. It is perfect. And so when we take an offering and we talk about the work of the church and all the things that we're doing, this isn't really about us. It's not about how amazing we do things or how friendly we are because the truth is sometimes our plans don't come off amazing and sometimes uh, each and every one of us, right, we all confess we're, sometimes we're not that friendly um, most of the time, 99% of the time. God's plans and God's ways are perfect. And so we are hopefully as a church, we are pointing people on from ourselves and towards Jesus the one who they ultimately need to know. We're going to pray. The ushers are going to come forward and and collect the offering. If you're a first-time guest here or you don't call this church your home, it's okay. Just let the plate pass. We're glad that you're here this morning. We'd love to be a blessing to you. We hope that you're encouraged. Uh, But this is not an opportunity where we seek to get uh, rich off you. Instead, it's a a time for those who call this church home to support the work and and the uh, continued mission of this church through their gifts and their offerings. We're going to pray. 
Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. We thank you that we have been able to sing your praises. We've gathered together. We have worshipped in song. And now we're going to worship in giving. And then we'll turn to worship by attending to the word. And we pray your grace on our time. Father, we pray that you would shepherd each dollar that's given, each resource that's sacrificed, and that we would put it to good use, Lord, that you would be made known, that you would be glorified. We pray your grace on our worship service this morning, Lord, and on our giving. And we ask that you would help us to trust you, help us to proclaim you, and help us to point away from ourselves as we share with others. Make your name great, we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. The ushers will come forward. Children are, children are dismissed back to Praise Factory. If you'd open your Bible to Luke chapter 12, we're going to be reading from there this morning. Luke chapter 12, as we turn and we focus on the advent of our Lord, the coming of, of Christ into the world. Um, the early church focused on Advent uh, for two reasons. This is, a, this is an ancient church tradition. And there's a whole lot of different interpretations of what the candles mean. You know, are they uh, virtues? Are they Bible characters? What do, they, what do they refer to? I prefer to play it pretty loose with the candles, you know, and, and I just I kind of make sure that we break things up into a number of, of, of different, um, a number of different categories as we consider the Lord. But in the early church, Advent was not just focused on the first coming of Christ, but was there as a reminder that Jesus would come again. And, and to teach and to educate the church that not only had Christ come once and come in peace and come with the message of the gospel, that he would come again and he would establish his kingdom and, and that he would come to rule. And so uh, there's, a, there's a, a double way of thinking about Advent. We are, we are focused on the coming of Christ, but not just on his first coming, but also on the fact that he will come again. And so we're going we're gonna to take um, these Sundays this month, and we're going to be focusing on the idea that we have a hope, not that Jesus came and gave us something and then left, but that he began a relationship with us. That he started something and one day he will come again and he will establish what he started or he will, he will finalize what he started and it will last forever. 
Let's look at Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13. I'm just checking my reference here. It is 12. Okay, good. Um, Jesus has been preaching and teaching, and he's growing in popularity. This is in the year of his popularity. There, there, there would be a, a year of growing awareness in his ministry as people are saying, like, who is this Jesus guy? And then there was a year when he was just famous and everybody wanted to know about him. And then the third year of his ministry, it seemed like nobody was happy with him anymore. Uh, because of the things he was teaching and the things that he was saying and the conspiracies against him. This is in the year of his popularity. He's teaching, and it says that someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions and he told them a parable saying the land of a rich man produced plentifully and he thought to himself what shall I do for I have nowhere to share my crops to store my crops and he said I will do this I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose Will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do a small thing of that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we are thankful for your willingness, for your humility, your willingness to take on flesh and to enter into a sinful world, to lay aside the free use of all of your abilities and attributes and to depend completely on your Father and the Spirit as a human being. Though you were fully God, in the fullness of time, you also took on humanity. Not ceasing to be God, but, but embodying humanity. And you entered this world and lived the way that a human being ought to depending completely on your Father and on the Spirit. And you lived a model life. Not so that we could look at you and feel horrible about how intensely we fail, but so that you could become a complete, effective, holy, righteous Savior. You entered into the fray and you lived the life that we couldn't so that we could avoid a punishment that we deserved. As we come to you this morning and we hear your word and we're entering into the midst of this crazy holiday season where there will be so many things to accomplish And we'll be spending time with family. And sometimes that's a joy and sometimes that's difficult. And sometimes we're excited to be together and sometimes we struggle. And there are expectations and anxiety can pop up. We pray that we would look to you to teach us on this subject. And to show us how you handled it yourself what it is that you did to live in a way that's faithful to the hope that you had in your Father and that we can have in you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us hope in the middle of anxious times, that you would give us tools, and that you would build our dependence on you, Lord, that we might live in a manner that's pleasing to you. We thank you for the, the goodness of your sacrifice on our behalf, and we pray that you would teach us now, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if all you ever know of Charles Dickens' story, The Christmas Carol, is that Scrooge was a grouch, right? You might, um, you might not really dig into the meaning, I think, of what, of what Dickens was focusing on in his book. Uh, in the middle of, of, of difficult times uh, for, for the people who were, were reading, in the middle of, of times where people were struggling with great poverty and there were those who had great riches, uh, Dickens writes a timeless story about a, an extremely grouchy person that it seems nobody likes, right? And he doesn't like anybody. But as we dig into his story, the story of Ebenezer Scrooge, we find that there was a great deal of 
pain there, right? And a great deal of worry and a great deal of focusing his time and his energy on piling up money so that there would never be any risk or pain or hurt in his life, right? And I don't know that Dickens, because of the the time that he lived in, I don't know that he would have called it anxiety, right? But I look at this guy and I think, man, look at the way, look at the, look at the way that he chose to live. He, he focused on control. He focused on, on, uh, on managing everything and being on top of all of his circumstances. And because he was so obsessed with it, he drove everyone away from himself and was completely and utterly alone. And he needed some help, right? To get him back on the right track. And this story, of course, has generated a whole bunch of remakes and adaptations. I think the two best are the ones with George C. Scott and then the one that stars the Muppets, right? That one is amazing. Uh, It has also launched probably a thousand Hallmark Channel Christmas movies, um, none of which are worth mentioning. (laughs) Joke, you feel free to watch them. They're bad. But I think that the, that the that that sometimes we focus on certain <coughs> themes in Christmas, and we don't focus on perhaps the uh, the way in which the gospel, <clears throat> the way in which the good news, the way in which Jesus addresses our needs and struggles. It is uh, no. News, I think, to some that anxiety and struggle with the world is on the rise. There are people who grapple with this and have grappled with it their whole lives, but it seems like more and more people are struggling with anxiety or with fear of the future, and they are focused on their worries, and they are seeking answers. And I think that the answer is is twofold. One, it seems like there are more things to worry about nowadays. But two, I think that we have increasingly looked to technology and to the government and to our own innovation to solve our problems, which are increasing, it seems. But when we look at the teachings of Jesus in his life, we find that he dealt with these kinds of questions. People came to him looking for answers, and he gave them answers and gave them, hopefully, we don't know what happened to this particular person, he gave them relief. There's a man who comes to Jesus in Luke chapter 12, verse 13, and he is coming to Jesus, to this famous teacher looking for relief. He comes to him and he says, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me, right? What, what is he anxious or nervous about, right? Obviously, 
Somebody has left an enormous trove of money here and he is thinking, I need to have some of that or the future will be bad. And so he goes to the teacher and he says, give me some help. I need you to give me a ruling here because this is what rabbis were back in those days. Teachers were interpreters of the law. And so he's saying, there's a right answer here and I need your help and I need you to to rule in my favor. And I imagine that the whole time that he was going that this guy was saying, He's he's gonna he's gonna he's gonna hear me. He's gonna hear what I gotta say. And he's gonna say, "Yep, split in in, in favor." You're right. You you need this, and, and he would walk away relieved that all of his problems were solved, right? Because he got the inheritance. Because he got the money, and so he comes with this anxious question, a demand that the money be given, split. Jesus doesn't give a simple answer. He never does. By the way, I believe almost 100% of the time when he's asked a question, he asks a question in return. Uh, What he then says to the guy is, man, hey man, who made you, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Really, you're going to drag me into, into this issue You're going to bring me into personal finances and into a matter of law. I imagine that the man must have immediately been depressed or stressed out because this is the worst kind of answer. It feels like he's been dismissed, right? Like, go away. I don't think that's Jesus' intent here. I think first he is uh, throwing some cold water at him, not to, not to douse all of his hopes and to extinguish any hope that there would be an answer here, but, but he's doing this to wake him up, right? To, to get him to pay attention. He says, this is not my function. This isn't why I came into the world. I'm not here to settle questions of personal finance between you and, and your brother. That's not why I'm here. And then he points out to him that he needs to watch out, that he needs to wake up and be on the alert. Take care, he says. Be on your guard against all kinds of covetousness. Your brother has got the money, right? And you are anxious and worrying. But he says, watch out and don't be deceived to what's really going on here. Because what's really going on is you... Think that if you don't have this, if you don't possess this thing that you desire, that your life is not going to work out. Be on guard against all forms of covetousness. Your life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Isn't it amazing that these words are 2,000 years old? And we are still dealing with the exact same struggles, aren't we? We're thinking, oh, if I just had a, had a different job and had more money, or if I just lived in a different place, or if I could just acquire this thing, if I could get this boat, or I could go on this vacation, or if I didn't have this limitation, or I didn't have this struggle, if there was more money in my retirement account, or if I had better this, or I had better that, right? And, and we think about acquisition and all the things that we need. And Jesus says, your life does not consist in what you've got. Right? 
And yet, how many of us, when we pay the bills, or when we check our bank account, or when we go to our accountant, we're told what our net worth is? Right? Have you, has anybody, anybody, I mean, you've, you've heard this phrase in reference to yourself, right? This is your net worth. This is your value. And then there is generally a number associated with that, right? Hopefully there are some commas in that number, right? And it's not just a bunch of zeros followed by a period and then two numbers, right? You know, hopefully, and hopefully it's not preceded all those numbers by a negative, right? That you have some value in the world. And Jesus says this, take care, be on your guard, One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. This man's fear, his anxiety, his desire for control or security drove him to go and find Jesus and to come to him and to say, get me what I need to be secure so that I can rest, so that I can be assured and not worry. And Jesus says... The problem here is not about what you've got. So what does Jesus always do? He tells a story. He tells a, a, a parable here. And the story is relatively simple. There was a man and he had everything that he wanted, right? Today, it would probably, instead of saying there was a rich man, they would say there was this billionaire, right? Who had this amazing company. This guy has land that produces Plentifully, And so the harvest comes in and they go and they bring it all in. And man, he's got 10 times what he was expecting. There is grain and fruit and resources. It's all over the place. And he says, I don't have enough place to put all the stuff. I built these barns and they are packed. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build bigger barns. And I'm going to store all my stuff. And I'm going to have enough to live for the rest of my life. I'll store my grain and my goods. And then in the uh, biblical and human tradition of talking to himself, he talks to himself, right? I'm going to say to my soul, soul, that's so much fun. You ever say something to yourself? I'll say to myself, self, right? Keith, this is what we're going to do. Let's go get a cup of coffee. And I'm like, good idea. And I go. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years, right? He has looked at the resources that he has gathered. And he says, these are all mine. And I'm going to stuff them all in my barns. And I'm going to relax because I have enough, right? I'm going to eat because it's mine. I'm going to drink and I'm going to be merry. Because his view of life and security consisted in having things go according to his plan, to having plenty in the barns, to having enough resources, to having it all under his control and working. It says, but God said to him, fool. This, by the way, is the worst insult in the Bible. To be a fool is to have your priorities completely in the wrong place to be completely unwise 
to be completely disconnected from the plan of God and the life of God. Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? On the question of who is going to get his stuff, Solomon grapples with this in the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, I've seen a rich man store up and then his servant gets these things when he dies. I've seen a rich man, Solomon says, pile up many goods, and then his son squanders them. And so he he sees the futility there. But what God points out to this rich man is that the things that he prepped and got ready, they're irrelevant at this point. But he points out something more important, that though he had paid attention and prepared and gotten ready physically, he had done nothing in terms of the preparation of his soul. You were prepared for many years of relaxation, eating, drinking, and being merry, but tonight your soul is required of you. Jesus says this, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This man comes to Jesus and says, tell my brother to split the inheritance. And Jesus tells him a parable about a man who thought that having a bunch of stuff was going to be good enough for him. It was going to be enough. It was going to be sufficient. And he says, you need to make sure that you are not rich in material goods and rich toward yourself and rich towards your own needs. But you need to make sure that you are rich toward God. Here is the problem that the gospel exposes, that the good news exposes to us. We all come to God desperate and broke. We come with all of these worries and these concerns and these needs, and we have nothing to give God in exchange for them. We have nothing that we can say, hey, I will give you this if you give me that. Let's make an exchange here. Many, many people think that's the way that it works. They think, I will, I will give my life in service to God. Um, they are about to go and to uh, take, a, take a test, and they think, okay, no more of this behavior, God, if you just help me pass this test. Right? No more of, of that if I, just, if I just make it through. Right? They make these deals with God. I'll do this if you do that. Exchanges. But the scriptures teach us that we are broken and that there is nothing good in us in terms of being able to offer anything to God. That we don't have the currency that we need in order to pay God to give us the things that we need. But there's good news. And I believe this is what Jesus is pointing us toward. He says that we need to be rich toward God. Not toward the world, right? The the world says I need to lay up and store and, and do. And those are good things as long as we're making sure that that's not our complete and total focus, right? As long as we're saying that this is how I will control all of my circumstances. This is how I will ensure my security. This is how I will manage all of my risk. Because if we've got it all under control, then what do we need God for, right? The scripture says that we always need him. This is the good news. 
as far as we're concerned when we come to God in poverty. This is what God promises in the Old Testament. Isaiah 55, 1, he says this, Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Isn't that interesting? He who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me. I think I've said this before. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? I think what he's saying here about coming and buying is where are we exerting our focus and our energy? Where are we? We we don't have the resources to actually get what we're after. Because only God can give them to us, but we exert energy, right? We're like, I, I, I will find peace. I will find satisfaction. I will, I will get what I need. And so we're exerting. And God says, come and get it without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? I can remember as a teenager looking through a magazine and seeing a full-page ad that says, there is a hunger in you that an entire bag of cheese curls will not satisfy. And I was like, I am going to prove that wrong. But it's true. As I have learned, right? You can consume and you can spend and pursue and you can look and invest and wind up unsatisfied. This is what God says. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. That's Isaiah 55, verse 1 and following. What is God saying to us? And what does he say throughout the scriptures? We have enormous needs. We need for our sins to be forgiven. We need direction. We need teaching. We need to know it's good. We need grace. We need God's patience. The good news is this, that God says, I will give it to you. I will put it out there for you. Will you come and get it? If we listen, if we turn to him, if we say, Lord, I have needs, teach me. He says he'll make with us an everlasting covenant, his sure, steadfast love for David. Now, when we tend to think of David, we think, man, David goes out there, right, with the sling and with the rock, and he throws it at the giant, and he's a superhero, and so of course God loves David, right? Because David is good. But if you fast forward in David's life, he messed up seriously, didn't he? This, this passage in Isaiah is written hundreds of years after David messed everything up. Hundreds of years after he went completely astray and his sins were recorded in the Old Testament for everyone to read. And God says, I still love him. Why? Because he depended fully on the Lord. He put his trust and his confidence in the Lord. 
Jesus points out that the way to manage, the way to avoid the mistake of being focused on managing everything ourselves, being anxious is to not be rich towards the world, but instead to be rich towards God, to put our faith and trust in his goodness. And so he moves from this warning and this illustration to a command. And this is where many, I think, who turn to this passage for encouragement in times of anxiety, I think this is something that causes some more anxiety if we don't read it right, right? Jesus then says, after he's, he's done sharing this parable, he says to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. And if we're anxious and we're like, man, if I could just get everything perfect, I'd no longer be anxious, right? If I could just figure it all out and I could act in a way that was obedient to God and then he would love me, right? We read this passage where he says, don't be anxious. And we're like, man, I'm nervous about that, right? How do I, how do I get that? How do I get that right? How do I make that perfect? There's, there's good news on the horizon, okay? It just, it comes near the end, okay? More obligation, right? Jesus points out here that the reason that we don't need to be anxious about all of the things that we think that we need and we require is that there's more to life than just food and more to life than just clothing. And so he offers us four pieces of evidence to encourage us and give us hope when we're worried, when we're anxious. He says this, first, consider the ravens. He says, look, birds don't build barns, you know, they don't plant seeds, they don't reap, right? They don't have storehouses, and yet God feeds them. Look out at the natural order, and you see that it works. Why? Because God is good, and he's caring for it. That's a positive piece of evidence. Second piece of evidence is a negative piece. He points out here, which of you, by being anxious or worrying, can add a single hour to your span of life? Right? He says, you're worried about so many things. Can all of that worry add up and translate into an extended lifespan? Also amazing, right? Wasn't this written 2,000 years ago when they were relatively unknowledgeable about unknowledgeable? When they, when they knew relatively little about medical science, right? And yet, what do we learn now? That anxiety actually extends your life dramatically? No, right? It's the opposite, right? It will harm you. It will hurt you. And so we need to make sure that we're not investing all this time and energy in worrying and being nervous about anything because that actually accomplishes the opposite of what we're expecting. And so he says, look, all your worry and all your stress doesn't enhance your life or extend it not one bit. Then he turns back to nature again and he talks about the flowers. He says, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Why does he go here? Why does he go to this point? Because within the natural order is evidence that God is good and kind and that he cares. And that he cares about little things and that he creates beauty and wonder all over the place. 
And so Jesus points then to one last piece of evidence. We see that God cares for the birds and that he dresses the flowers as evidence and reminders to us. He points out that anxiety can't extend our life not one bit. And then he says this, based on these three pieces of evidence, let me point out that God the Father loves you. And he says this, don't seek what you're to eat and what you're to drink, nor be worried for all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. When we look out at the world, we can see evidence, not in the way that humans are behaving, but in the way that God has designed the world, that he cares and that he is still in control and that he is still working. And Jesus says, based on these things, trust in the fact that God cares for and loves you. The scriptures point out that this is the great good news of the gospel. Though we are dead in sins and trespasses, though we have sinned against God and we have not done anything to deserve his love and affection, the scripture says because of the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive together with Christ. This is good, strong news in the midst of anxiety and worry, is that God did not give us the things that he gives to us because we earn them. He gives them to us because he is good and kind. Listen to how the scriptures back this up. The, the, the way that we push back and fight back against anxiety and worry and nervousness is to dig down deep and to build a foundation of truth that's built on the, who the Bible says God is and who the Bible says we are because of his character. Four verses, and then we pray, and we sing a song, and we go. Deuteronomy 31.6 says this, Be strong and courageous. But I am nervous and worried and anxious. How can I be strong and courageous? It doesn't matter what we are. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of your enemies, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. We may say, yeah, but... Right? To which I say, yeah, but nothing. That's a promise. Yeah, but that's the Old Testament. Here's one from the New Testament. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. But what if I... No. He will not leave you or forsake you. If you have put your faith and trust in Christ, if you've said, I come to you with nothing, I need, help me, then he promises that he will cleanse us from our sins, adopt us as his children, and give us each and every thing that we need. Not everything that we want, not everything that makes us feel comfortable, but he gives us everything that we ultimately need. We were told... By Jesus early on that we need to be rich towards God, that we need to be aware of him and that we need to be not focusing purely on our, our human needs and on ourselves. But what he says in Ephesians 2, 4 shows us how God being rich towards us enables us to live a life 
that pleases him. God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we weren't good, even when we didn't do anything to earn his affection or his care, he made us alive together with Christ. By God's grace, he points out, you've been saved. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. When we were imperfect and messed up, God said, I love you and I will save you. So then in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. And so this is what Jesus recommends. He says, don't worry about all of these things. You ought, to, you ought to focus on what you can do over the long haul, right? To save what you can for the future or to watch out for your health or to do all of these things. We ought to, we ought to focus in that area, but to worry and to be anxious over it. Those are all details which are in God's hands. Jesus offers us an exchange. He says this, Don't worry about those things. Your father knows that you need them. And he's already told us that he loves us. He says, instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. He'll give you all that you need. You worry about his kingdom and his righteousness and he will worry about everything else. Now, here's the last piece of the the praise sandwich, right? Right? This is is what I think we call it, right? The, The top layer is this. Don't be anxious. And we're like, but I, you know, if I'm anxious, then I'm breaking the command, right? He's not saying you are absolutely and utterly forbidden to be anxious. He's saying you don't have to worry about it. Look at how, right, there's content in the middle after he says this. Don't be anxious. Verse 32, he gives us the other piece. He says this, don't fear Little flock is what he calls them. That's an affectionate term. It's not, you're so small, right? You know, that's, that's, I love you. He says, it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. His love moves him to give you good things. Spurgeon has said this, because of the sacrifice of Christ, because of what he did on the cross, and when we put our faith and trust in him, this is what, what Spurgeon says, that the entire life of the Christian is lived under the smile of God. We don't need to worry. We don't need to fear. Instead, we can embrace the risky things. We can sell our possessions, give to the needy. We can, we can build up treasure in heaven because we know that our Father has it. And so he says, where our treasure is, there your heart is also. We can have hope in the midst of difficult circumstances, in the midst of trying times, in the midst of of stressful decisions. We can know that our father is looking out for us, that he is worrying about our needs. And yes, we ought to prepare, but we ought not to worry Because our Father loves us. And he has given us Christ to give us righteousness. And that will never be taken away. Never. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning as we closed with a a song. I pray that we would not forget that God's goodness and 
kindness, that the goodness and kindness that you intend for us has been shown to us in Christ. You have promised that you'll never leave us or forsake us. Governments fail, banks fail, people fail. We have bills at times that that surpass our ability to pay them, but you do not fail. And therefore, we need not worry. Instead, we can turn to you and say, I'm going to worry about focusing on living in a way that pleases you. I'm going to focus on doing good. I'm going to focus on being genuine and trusting. And I'm going to leave the rest to you. That might be scary and that might be risky, but you say taste and see that the Lord is good. And so I pray this morning that we would focus our hearts and minds on what you've given us in Christ And that we would rely fully on you, Father. We pray that you would grow us through worry. That you would help us to trust you. And that you would give evidence as we do trust you. That you care for us the way that you say in the word. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to hear this. We pray your grace on all that we do as we go throughout the activities of the day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing a closing song together.